Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I am joined by an author and marketing professor who teaches the most popular course at Yale School of Management, Mastering Influence and Persuasion. Welcome to the podcast, Zoe Chance. Thank you, Adrian. I'm so happy to talk with you today. Me too. I have so many questions for you, Zoe. I, I actually received a copy of your book. It was a few months ago now. The book is called Influence is Your Superpower, How to Get What You Want Without Compromising Who You Are. And straight away, I, I, the, just the title itself kind of drew me in. I really, really enjoyed reading the book. And so I'm so grateful that we were able to connect and record this episode today. Thank you. And I'm so glad you liked it. I think you and I have uh, very similar goals in life in terms of how we help people. Yeah, well, oh gosh, I've always been fascinated with people. That's the, probably the thread between everything that I do. I've always been fascinated with people. I love to ask questions. I've always been very curious and trying to understand really like what people do, why they do it, why some people, certain situations or certain things will some people will thrive, whereas others will fail. So I guess I'd love to start off today by just taking that first word, influence. And typically when we hear that word in the context of you know, learning how to influence others, we might have negative feelings towards that. So it's something that you address very early on actually in the beginning of the book and that we sometimes associate influence with words such as manipulate, persuade, coerce. And yeah, it can seem like these are inherently bad things. So I'd love to start there. And if you could talk to us about, yeah, why do we have that feeling when we hear the word influence? Sure. Um, and I don't know if persuade is inherently negative, but certainly manipulate and coerce, right? It's mm -hmm. interesting to me that we, the majority of us would like to be more influential, but we don't want to do influence. And when, especially we hear phrases like influence strategies or influence tactics, we're like, ew, or social media influencers, there's a minority of people who want to be social media influencers and have a ton of fame and money. And then the majority of people are like, oh, yuck, I wouldn't even want to be in the same room as you. <laughs> so the I'm not talking about influence in that very specific way on social media. And in the book, I'm talking primarily about interpersonal influence and individual people talking to, communicating with, being with and, and influencing other individual people. But it's interesting that we tend in at least the past, I don't know, maybe this is like 50 years to have shifted from influence and becoming influential as being about building character to being about sales and marketing and mm. a very ta transactional kind of thing where we want to get what we want from other people and we treat them like objects mm. and what we want to feel from other people is a relationship and communicating in a two-way street where 
sure, we want to be more influential, but we don't want to be forcing people to do things. And we definitely don't want other people to be trying to force us to do things. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? The intention. And it's so funny when you said that about like social media influencers, because I'll be honest with you, Zoe, and listeners of this show will probably know, some will, you know, I am a podcast host, I'm an author, I'm a wellbeing coach, you know, I'm a strategist, all these things. But because I have a certain number of Instagram followers, I have definitely been introduced before and people will say, oh, she's an influencer. And I literally, I'm like, oh, it makes me like almost annoyed. And then people are like, well, what's so so, it's so funny. But then people are like, what's so bad about that? And often people say in in a good way, they think it's a compliment. They're like, she's an influencer and and she's a podcaster. And I'm always like, oh, it's funny that, yeah, you're right. I definitely don't want that as like a, 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 at all in my, you know, next to my name. But it's funny that people do think that, well, firstly, they think it's a compliment. And secondly, that that is the word that they would use above all of the other things. I do. Um, So I thought that was that was really interesting. But definitely the point around the intention of why somebody wants to, yeah, I guess, have an influence or or have an impact versus, yeah, the words manipulate and coerce and people thinking that it's about that exactly what you said, transaction of what can I get you to do or or how can I win you over and make you um, pick me or vote for me or that kind of feeling. Right. And what kind of products are you trying to sell me? Mm, yeah. yeah. And I think and that's it, where trust, trust definitely comes in, right? If you, if you trust the person, then you might be more willing to yeah hear what they have to say. Whereas I think when it comes to, yeah, what are you trying to sell? Or what are you trying to persuade me to, to, to buy into? I think that's where people's, uh, you know, they would say, trust your instincts. It's like, if your instincts tell you this feels, feels off, then you're probably right. I don't know about trust your instincts. Um, I've certainly had my instincts steer me wrong in many different situations. And I've seen that happen with other people too. But I absolutely agree that when your instinct tells you there's something that doesn't feel right about this situation, that at the very least, you get a little analytical and notice, are there specific signs? That there's something not right about this but but our instincts for example can come from a lot of really ugly social biases and have people mm. feeling like well this isn't right because it's really just that that person is different from you in some way yeah so yeah that's true yeah it's complicated and I, and about trying to sell people stuff my background is sales and marketing in the real world i was a marketer being a brand manager for the Barbie brand at Mattel. I worked in sales and very unglamorous jobs like door-to-door sales and telemarketing. And now I'm a marketing professor at Yale School of Management. So it's not that I think trying to sell people things is bad, but this idea of just very, in a greedy way, approaching mm-hmm. somebody to try to get them to buy something, regardless of what whether it might be helpful for them or not is the kind of attitude that really uh, annoys people and puts them off. Yeah. And so what is influence really about? You know, we often think that if someone is charismatic, if they're warm, if they're likable, you know, we all know that person who in the room, people gravitate towards them, people want to be around them. And I probably used to think, well, that's just due to their personality. It's just kind of, you know, who they are. It's not something they could teach or learn. But, and and it can appear effortless as well. When it appears effortless that some people can influence others or they're naturally leaders and people look to them. But as I've learned from your work, influence is actually a skill. And is this something that we can teach and we can learn? 
Absolutely, yes. And also, I hope you don't mind if I get a little bit personal, but my perception of you based on what I've seen and heard of your work and then just our intro conversation this morning is that you are one of those people. And I wonder if you experience that and if you have um, any particular insight about um, what that might be about you that has people wanting to say yes to you. Wow, I guess... Yeah, I think what I used to put that down to, if I'm honest, was being extroverted, being uh, confident and, and just my my passion for people. As I said, I love to talk. And I think, you know, growing up, I was I was definitely scolded for that. You know, my school reports would say, oh, Adrienne talks too much or, you know, you ask too many questions. <laughs> it's kind of like it's disruptive because you're always asking questions. Just just kind of get on with it. And so I thought it was just uh, yeah, I think partly my personality is that I want to ask questions and I want to, and I listen. And I think, I think what I've learned through the last 10 years, I suppose, of, you know, interacting with different people in different places, different organizations, different brands, all kinds of people is that actually people really like it when they have an opportunity to share something about themselves. And when you ask someone a question, not, you know, it's not always uh, really thought out. Sometimes I'll just see someone, for example, I was at an event a few years ago and there was a lady by the door who was, um, pregnant. And I just started to ask, I was like, Oh, wow, you're pregnant. You know, when is your baby due? And I started this conversation, you know, again, me asking questions. And then later on, you know, a few weeks later, actually this lady got in touch with me about working, um, on a job and it turned into, yeah, this really great opportunity, but I certainly wasn't, you know, kind of working the room. I just genuinely was interested in, in asking questions. So yeah, I guess, would I say that people, yeah, I think I'm someone who can easily make friends and can easily uh, build connections with others. But I've always put that down, I think, just to being extroverted and not being afraid, actually, to ask questions um, to anyone. It's interesting that you have this um, perspective that it's both your extroversion and your listening. And I think that this is probably true, but also that the listening part, as I think you're saying, is the much more important piece of that. And in order to be influential or charismatic, nobody has to be extroverted. And when I ask people to think of a charismatic individual and anyone listening can just think of who pops into your head when you think of a charismatic person and maybe it's someone you know or maybe it's someone famous, a lot of the people who pop into our head heads seem extroverted. First of all, a lot of celebrities and performers and actors and business leaders seem extroverted, but they're not at all. Um, I'm, among other things, a professional public speaker. So I'll go on stage and I'll be shining and sparkling in a room of thousands of people potentially. And I have an acting background and training that's helped me be able to do this. But I am very introverted. I was so shy when I was a child that and I was such a nerd that I had this theory that my voice was the same frequency as the ambient sounds of the universe. And that's why nobody listened to me. And they just <laughs> talked over me when I spoke. And of course, it was just because I was quiet and I was shy and I wasn't actually speaking loudly enough for them to hear. But when I'm on the road and I do probably 50 talks a year, this was actually even before the book, 50 talks a year outside of my regular teaching at Yale. And I will normally just hole up in my hotel room before after a talk and I'll just order room service, take a bath and just enjoy time by myself. 
So um, I mentioned this partly because a lot of people I talk to think that professional speaking sounds glamorous, especially people who are interested in self-development like you and I are. And many of them have the assumption that one would need to be an extrovert mm. to do this kind of thing. We absolutely don't. Um, but then separately about the focusing on other people and listening to them and just what you said, Adrian, about how people appreciate having a chance to talk about themselves. I find it really interesting that research in neuroscience has shown that we experience the same kind of pleasure when we talk about ourselves as when we are uh, eating chocolate, having sex, receiving money, or doing cocaine. <laughs> um, any of these primary rewards activate this dopamine system. That's the same thing that gets activated when we talk about ourselves. It's just intrinsically pleasurable. There's um, a researcher named Diana Tamir who's at, the, at Princeton University. And she's found that people will pay money in studies to share inconsequential information about themselves. Like, um, like not that are you pregnant, when are you due is inconsequential. That's pretty important. But even information like, do you like mushrooms on pizza? Um, do you prefer snowboarding or skiing? Mm -hmm. And it's so enjoyable to tell people about ourselves that, uh, that we'll pay for it. Other research by Alison Wood Brooks and some of her colleagues at Harvard has found that not only do we like people better when they ask us questions, but we like them even more when they ask us follow-up questions. And mm -hmm. that's another way that your natural curiosity makes you more likable and influential, Adrian, because you're curious to really understand. So you're not just asking somebody a question so that they can talk about themselves. You really want to know them and want to learn things so you ask follow-up questions yes i do i do i'm genuinely interested and actually now that you're saying it in that way it's also reminding me because i'm thinking of all the times when yeah i've met strangers or i've worked with people and quite quickly you can feel quite comfortable and familiar in it because you're asking questions and as you said you're genuinely interested in listening and a few years ago it's, quite a long time now, maybe five years ago, I was working with a supermodel. Her name is Carly Kloss. You probably know who she is. She is like a super, super, supermodel. And at the time we were both working with a brand with Adidas in London and she was the model and I was actually movement directing her. And so this, we did this maybe for, I don't know, maybe an hour. And obviously she's an international supermodel. She's traveling around the world. She's super busy. You know, we only spent an hour, probably less than an hour. Maybe it was 30 minutes together. And then the following year, so probably around a year later, she was back in London again for another event with the same brand. And this time I was just kind of hosting and I was introducing people to the stage. But backstage, we kind of met again and I thought, oh, she's not going to remember, you know, me from a year ago. And she did. And not only did she remember me, but she was honestly, I was so blown away. And again, she's incredibly charismatic, incredibly warm. And she said to me, she was, oh, hey, Adrienne. She was like, how are you? How is your son? She remembered my name. She remembered his name. And then she went on to say, oh, how was your, um, how was the marathon? She said, last time I saw you, you were training for a marathon and how did it go? And I was like, how do you remember? That was a year ago. And you are, as I say, this super celebrity, high flyer. I'm expecting her to probably not even remember that we've even met before because we all know those people as well, where you kind of go, hi, I'm 
Adrienne and they say nice to meet you and you think oh my gosh I've met you before and it's awful right. but she remembered and she asked me you know she, again she asked me follow-up questions and I and I still remember that and it was five years ago so I think that speaks to the the power of yeah asking questions and listening. It's so inspiring, isn't it? When you meet someone who's super famous, so successful, and they really do actually care to take time and know you. I'm, I'm impressed when anybody remembers anybody's names. I'm pretty bad at it. But what I do do is that anyone um, can do who's also bad at remembering names. Like the idea of remembering your son's name a year later, <laughs> just so next level. But I write down names of people and names of their families, not all the time at all, but I have a list in my phone. And I started doing this after I had this upstairs neighbor named Kevin. And this was when I was living near Boston town um, called Cambridge, Massachusetts. And everyone called Kevin the mayor of Cambridge because he, he acted like the mayor. He's just an optometrist who lives in an apartment in Cambridge, but he knows everyone and he uses their name. You're like, hey, Adrian, how's it going? Adrian, so nice to see you, Adrian. And you laugh and it it makes you um, think that he's like funny, goofy, adorable, sweet, but you really feel like he likes you. And I learned that Bill Clinton, when he was a student at Yale, where I teach, had been inspired by Napoleon. So Bill Clinton had major aspirations for political leadership early on. He'd been inspired by Napoleon to keep a notebook with him at all times where he wrote people's names down because he wanted to remember people's names. And I just felt the experience of how good it was to have Kevin and other people remembering my name and then reading about people keeping notebooks. Another... Um, friendly acquaintance I have is the CEO of Fortune magazine. And he practices learning people's names. His daughter was my TA as well for my class. He practices learning people's names by memorizing them on his runs. So mm. he, when he goes for a run, he's memorizing the names of the people that he's met within the past day or so. And I will write down names of people, not specifically say powerful or important people in my life who might be able to do something for me, but someone like the barista at the coffee shop or the facilities employee who cleans my office or, you know, the security guard or the parking lot attendant. Those are especially the people that I want to remember the names of because I really appreciate them and I want them to feel appreciated. And it makes a huge difference to have interactions with people just like you were talking about adrian where there's no reason that she needed to remember your name she just wanted to remember your name mm. right? yeah um and neuroscience has also shown that our names activate this specific network in our mind that is um it not surprisingly it's the self-referential network but it's a a powerful network for focusing attention and this is why when you're sleeping, you may wake up when somebody says your name or in a crowded room, you can hear somebody talking about you, even if they're standing far away and you weren't listening to them at all. So that's just another small thing, learning people's names. But overall, what we're talking about is that influence and then more specifically charisma 
comes from focusing our attention on another person. And when that person feels that we're really caring about them, listening to them, paying attention to them, then they give us their attention. So we receive attention by giving our attention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the perfect segue actually into the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about. And it's a line in your book, which I highlighted under, underlined that says to connect with many people, connect with one. And of course, when we're talking about influence, people do think about, okay, c- connecting or, or influence as to, to mass, you know, to, to a lot of people, we might, we might picture somebody on a stage, you know, speaking to loads and loads of people, but actually that really stood out to me. So what does, what does that mean when you wrote that? Why is individual connection so important when it comes to influence? It's interesting that we can feel other people's vicarious connection. So when somebody is connecting with us, like you and I talking one-on-one, and I feel and appreciate the attention that you're paying to me, but people listening to us having this intimate conversation they can feel connected with you and with me as well. And this also happens from the stage where when you or I or any performer or speaker is up there talking to a group of people, we can connect with them better by focusing one at a time on specific individuals and then other people will feel it rather than scanning the audience and what we can practice this. So most of us aren't on stage that, that often, but we can practice it in any group conversation where we can notice rather than looking around at everybody, we're typically just making eye contact with one or a few people in the group. We can do it more mindfully where we focus on one person at a time, making eye contact, connecting with them. We can use their name, you know, smile, ask them a question, and then we shift our attention to someone else. What we'll also notice when we're more mindful about our behavior, our unconscious behavior in these group conversations, is that it's not random who we're paying attention to, and it's definitely not equal who we're Mm. paying attention to. So there's some people that we like better, some people that have more power, some people that we just feel more drawn to. And when we're more mindful of it, we can be intentionally connecting with the other people who are invisible in the group if we're not mindful about it. Mm. Oh my gosh, Zoe, as you were talking, one person came into mind and I don't wanna say this person's name because (laughs) any friends will know exactly who I'm talking about, but this is a friend of mine who is a single guy and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying, but if I was just to show you a photo of this guy, you would be like, okay, cool. You know, he's a average looking guy and maybe quite forgettable. But if you meet him, he's incredibly charismatic. People, I have I know female friends that have met him and after 15 minutes in like a group setting, like a party or a bar, they are just kind of in, this, in his spell, they're under his spell. And I've seen it happen so many times. And they, I've heard two people have said to me, I think one is, 
the eye contact, like you said, he has this kind of intense eye contact where he just, you feel like this, his, his attention is just on you. There could be a hundred people in the room, but you, his attention is just on you. And one friend actually said to me, she said, yeah, he makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. And yeah. I've seen this spell, as I said, you know, he is notorious for like dating and people are always like, oh gosh, like keep your friends away from him <laughs> because <laughs> they know they're going to be full under this spell. So I don't know, is that something that he... I don't think he's ever kind of, you know, honed this skill. I think it's kind of just his his way. And I guess he has a very high success rate, so he probably just keeps repeating it. But um, yeah, do you think that anyone listening who thinks, okay, I'm not good in those settings, maybe I'm not good at meeting new people, maybe I'm not good on a first date or an interview, like what can they do to, yeah, I guess, have a little bit of his magic? Exactly what you're talking about where you focus on one person at a time you make eye contact you really really give them your attention in a generous way it's not in a selfish way right it's in a generous way and that's what's compelling and charming and charismatic about it and a lot of us have met men who know how to do this whether they've practiced it or whether for some people it's natural and um, i had the assumption that this is a guy thing and that for women what matters so much more is physically how attractive you are right if and i'm just being stereotypical and talking about straight relationships and i think queer women are not as um as picky as straight men are about physical attractiveness hmm. but i got to have this experience that completely blew my mind and absolutely changed all of those misguided assumptions that i had where i was doing this Oh, a long-term workshop with this organization in New York City that's called the School for Womanly Arts. And I had met this woman who was so charismatic and compelling and so happy and having so much fun. And she talked about this group of women she hung out with. And these women are, there are thousands of women and they're all over the world, not just in New York, it's headquartered there. And they're women of all shapes, sizes, ages, colors, life paths. Many of them are really wacky. But what I got to see was women in not just their 40s and 50s, but even 60s and 70s, full of life and so playful. And many of them um, not being attractive in a standard kind of way, um, like, you know, all different body shapes, for example, but being so happy with themselves and so attentive to other people that the, so many of these women can just walk into a room and charm absolutely anybody. And the first time I noticed this was when I was hanging out with a group of women from this group and there was a woman in her 50s who was very short overweight and funny but not someone that i would imagine if i were straight man in my 30s being attracted to not the kind of western beauty standard idealized yeah, or we're kind of shown to be yeah the kind of not the supermodel right very much not the supermodel and um and we're walking out <laughs> we're walking out of this restaurant and she sees this guy who's very well dressed european looking super well groomed and just 
incredibly hot in his 30s and and she goes up to him as he's walking in the door total stranger and she cups his face in her hands and she says oh you must be so cold and i was shocked because it's winter time he's just and i was i was so shocked and he looked at her and just like you said he's just instantly under her spell and then they end up hanging out and i don't know what happened in the evening after that but but for a long time after that while I was still at the bar he's just entranced by her and just wanting to talk with her and he's just delighting in her attention wow yeah so much in there and so much more to it than as you said you know what's impacting our you know, from romantic relationships to friendships to professional settings. And actually one question that I have for you, Zoe, is a question kind of on behalf of a friend, actually, somebody that I've worked with in the past. And her question was, how do you talk in a way that other people will listen? And and the example that she often gives is a group setting in, in a work environment. So uh, a very important meeting, maybe there's eight or 10 other people in the meeting. And there's typically two or three people that will speak the most, they will dominate the conversation. And she said that there's other people who they kind of sit back, they don't say much, but when they do, everyone listens and no one talks over them or interrupts them. But she said she feels incredibly frustrated and she doesn't want to just pin it down to, oh, you know, this is a stereotypical workroom thing because I'm a female and the men don't listen. But she's like, I've noticed when I talk, they will cut me off mid-sentence. They will talk over me. Sometimes they'll just kind of hurry, hurry me along in this way that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And they'll move on to the next thing. And then she said, when other people are speaking, they're not interrupted. Everybody listens. So yeah, what's going on there? And what are the things that we can do ourselves to speak and to ask questions and to listen in, in a way that it enables other people to listen when we talk? I feel so passionate and so aggravated by this topic <laughs> that we could talk <laughs> yeah. at least for a whole entire hour about this one thing. First of all, she is right that women empirically are interrupted more often than men are. And for men, it matters a lot more wh what position in a hierarchy they're in. So sometimes men in lower roles in the hierarchy might get interrupted, but men who are in positions of power will almost never be interrupted, while even women in positions of power will be interrupted. Mm. So this is true. However, there are lots of things that we can do. And one of the first things is we can protect each other even better than we can protect ourselves. And we're talking about women and gender differences here, but this is applicable for anyone who is in a group of people that has mm, less airtime or mm. less share of voice than they might. So it might have to do with your position in the hierarchy like we talked about it might have to do with your race it might have to do with you being a non-native speaker it could be, have to do with your age anything when you're in that group along with other people my best advice is for you to talk with other people in the group and your group your minority and you specifically have a plan to amplify each other mm. so when it's not just that when you speak up you try to have other people not interrupt you. But when you hear someone else in your group, your your peeps, your posse, they speak up, they get interrupted, and you say, I wanted to hear what 
Adrian was saying, right? Or you come back to it, you know, like Adrian was saying a minute ago, or tell me more about that, Adrian, mm. right? And this is what I've heard a number of women on boards say that when women on women are on boards, obviously these are very senior women. They're getting interrupted, just like women at every other level. But it's especially helpful when they can amplify and support each other, when they have two or especially when they have three. And so all of us can do this. The second thing is to for people who are in positions of power to point out when the interrupting is happening. It's not easy and mm. usually not advisable for some, like, you know, your junior person in the room. It's really not cool for you to be like, um, excuse me, did you notice that you just interrupted her? Right. <laughs> but, yeah. but if you're the boss, you can do that and it's helpful. And then when you are, we're talking about you individually, each of us, couple of things that you can do. First of all, it helps a lot to speak up early. And like we were talking about earlier in a group conversation where each of us naturally makes eye contact only with a small number of people in that group. Maybe it's the powerful people, people we like, whoever it is. Everyone else seems invisible. But if you speak up early in a meeting, then you're not invisible and people notice you and you and everyone else registers your presence. And when you speak up early, it doesn't mean that you have to say something brilliant. So this was the best advice I've gotten from my worst ever boss, was be one of the first three people in a meeting to speak. That was when I was a junior manager at Mattel. And he told me, which is, I've subsequently learned to be absolutely true, you can ask a question, you can speak up during the small talk that happens before the actual meeting begins, mm. or you can speak up just to voice support for something someone else had said, or you can ask a question. You don't have to be brilliant. You just have to be early. And then mm -hmm. people listen to you more. And then the final thing that I'll say is that a lot of us, and this is more women than men, but many, many of us use diminishers when we talk and we use them specifically in a preamble before we say the thing. Like, I just want I, I kind of thought like, I, I could be wrong, but um, I don't know if this is, and all of those preambles are really hard to listen to mm. and they tune people out. We're doing it so that we're not a threat and we're actually trying to build rapport and have people like us, but it doesn't work that way. So we can eliminate the diminisher. We can just say the thing or we can shift a statement to a question. Questions get attention. So these are just some ideas for your friend and just tell your friend, I really feel for her. Oh gosh, Zoe, this is super useful, helpful, actionable. I'm just, I love this. I'm listening and thinking, okay, great. Cause I also have, you know, meetings myself where I'm in maybe with eight or 10 others. And yeah, this is super, super helpful. I love that kind of, you know, speak early and it doesn't have to be a yeah, super profound, but contribute in some way. And I also really love the idea of 
yeah, having someone else's back and saying, oh, actually, I'd love to hear what Haley was saying. Can you explain a bit more about that? And kind of taking the attention back to them. I love that. I'm going to definitely do that. But the last one I was thinking as actually the diminishes thing, my senior in a company that I work for, he actually gave me some feedback about a year ago and I tried to implement it myself about this at the diminishes. I, I used to do this. I'm trying to do it less, not so much at the start of my contribution. So I, I wouldn't necessarily start with, oh, you know, maybe or I would say what I thought and I'd give clear points and I'd you know kind of this is what I think and this is why and I'd back it up but then I would finish with a diminisher I would kind of finish Mm. with a oh you know it does that make sense or you know I could be wrong and as you said I would he sometimes was like you add a contribution which is great and then you kind of undermine yourself by saying that at the end and he is yeah it was great piece of feedback actually that he said to me why do you are you conscious that you do that like why do you do that and it made me yeah really reflect and and I've tried to eliminate and stop doing that it's so nice that you have someone who cares enough and listens well enough to give you that feedback and a specific thing for all of us who use that phrase, does that make sense? And I, I do it by accident when I'm not thinking about it also, is we can just ask, so what do you think? Mm. And there's nothing diminishing about it, but we're shifting attention and moving the conversation along. Um, and it, it also when we're, when we're speaking and or teaching those of us who do that, instead of saying, does anybody have questions or do you have any questions? Just shifting to what questions do you have? And then opening the floor to someone else. Yeah. Um, I wonder if Adrian, I have another piece of advice that I think is really important to offer about influence and group meetings. And mm-hmm. I think you and I didn't plan that this conversation would focus on group meetings, but it's so generally applicable universally mm-hmm. to all of us yeah. that I think I could be helpful going even deeper on that. Is that okay? Of course, yes, please do. Okay. There is a process that I've been teaching that I've recently learned has a name in Japanese. It's called Nemawashi. Nemawashi means cultivating the roots. And this is really the key to getting other people on board with your great idea in a group. And the piece of it that we underestimate the importance of is what happens before the meeting. So we've been talking about communication in the meeting, but Mm -hmm. really the most important thing is what happens before the meeting. You're going to pitch an idea or share a concept or try to move the needle on something. You have pre-meetings with specific individuals, not everybody, but pre-meetings with whoever is the decision maker or powerful hold power holder, one or more of those people. With those people, you're sharing the idea, you're asking their input, and you're also asking their advice about the politics or the process of persuasion, because they know a lot about that. So they're on board to advise you, gives you give you some help, and they get your idea, and they've made it better before the meeting. The second group of people to talk to is anyone you anticipate resistance from. Hmm. Those people, you're sharing your basic idea. You don't give them all the details in any of these pre-conversations, but share the basic idea and you listen to any concerns that they might have. And you will be addressing those concerns if you can, and you're listening to help, again, improve your great idea. And then the third group of people you talk to or third individual you talk to is anyone who you think you can count on as an ally 
Yes. You, they may be on board and supporting you, but they're unlikely to be vocal about it as loudly or as early as you would want them to be unless you ask them. So you share the great idea, again, get advice, and you ask, would you be willing to support this idea when I pitch it at the meeting? They say yes, and then they will. When you share your idea at the meeting, you've already talked to some of the people in the room. A small thing that's going on that um, most people overestimate the importance of when they hear it, but it's still cool, is this. People nod their head in re agreement and in recognition. Other people in the room who you didn't pre-meet with see the people that you pre-met with nodding their heads, maybe in agreement, maybe in recognition, and the recognition looks like agreement. They're just nodding their head to say like, yeah, I remember this conversation that we had, but visually it looks like we're all in agreement. So people who haven't heard the idea before have the perception like, oh, here's something that everybody agrees with, everybody likes. Okay, great. Because you have improved your great idea since you met with these people, got advice, it's better and they feel more invested in this idea, mm -hmm. right? Because they helped it along. And then for the people who are potentially still resistant, right? You may not have solved all of their problems. They're quieter and they're less reactive because you can yourself voice any key concern that you haven't been able to address yet. So, you know, I talked to Kyle and, um, and Kyle made the point that, you know, we've got to make sure this doesn't happen or this is a potential risk, right? So then Kyle doesn't need to say that objection that he has, he feels listened to, right? Part mm -hmm. of the group. And when I'm sharing Kyle's objection, I get to frame it in a way that is whatever's the best, most helpful way I can frame it. So it's very powerful for me to get to frame Kyle's objection rather than Kyle bringing it up. And this is a process that most people in most situations won't do because mm -hmm. it takes a while. But any time you have something important that you're working on that you really need people on board with, this is absolutely, absolutely critical. If you don't do it, then what happens very easily is that you put the idea out there and the initial comment or two might be critical. And then the whole group just goes down the critical path, finding flaws in your great yes. idea. And this pre prevents that from happening. Yes, I've seen that happen so many times. And this is so helpful. Honestly, I'm already thinking of people that I'm going to share this with. And what was what was coming up as well when you were talking, I was thinking about the you know, kind of, the, as you mentioned, the buy-in of speaking to people individually, giving them an opportunity to not only give feedback and maybe uh, if there's things they don't agree with, but also to feel included in the decision-making because you can say, oh yeah, great. You know, I take that on board, you know, thanks. I'll, I'll think about that. And I, I've definitely seen this happen where the, I'm sure you're familiar though, the hippo effect. So it's the highest no, paid. I don't know the hippo oh, effect. The hippo effect is essentially, is, I'm not sure who coined this, so I should, I'll find out, but it's the highest paid person person in the room and it basically says that once they for example say yeah they they don't like it or they pull um something out as you described everybody else then kind of goes oh yeah they kind of jump on with that person's viewpoint versus if the hippo the highest paid person in the room says oh this is great then other 
people who maybe had concerns are less likely to voice them. And I think why this is really interesting to flip it around is, of course, as an individual, if I'm going into a meeting and I'm pitching an idea, of course, I want people to nod their heads and everyone to say, yes, this is great. And we all move ahead. However, if I flip that around and maybe if I'm in a leadership position, if I'm the CEO, if I'm looking around and everyone's nodding their head because the, the you know, because I said, because the, because the hippo effect is in place, then actually because we're avoiding maybe some conflict or maybe we just don't want to go against the group, are we going to get to the best outcome? Because actually I want to hear people's challenges. I want to hear people's, oh, well, maybe you haven't thought about this or maybe this could be better because ultimately that's how we're going to improve and get the best outcome. If we all just nod our heads and agree, then... Yes, we might all be bought in, but is that actually going to be yeah the best solution and the best route? So I think this is super fascinating, and I hope that people listening are going to yeah take take notes and kind of revisit this conversation and think when can I apply this in my work in my life? It doesn't even have to be necessarily in a professional setting. Maybe it's a yeah friendship group. Maybe it's within your family conversations or or negotiations. And I think this is super super helpful. So thank you. Great. Thank you. And I love the hippo effect, hippo effect frame. I'm going to use that in the future. Well, I mentioned then uh, the word negotiation, and that is uh, another topic. If we have time, I'd love to talk to you about, because I think negotiation, typically when I listen to podcasts or I read books that talk about this, they are usually from males and they're usually quite, I don't know, the, the energy around it feels very directive, which is about, you know, negotiation rules and tactics for kind of getting what you want and, you know, standing your ground and all this kind of thing. But I also think that I'd love to hear yeah, your perspective on which negotiation things are effective, things that we can maybe, maybe things that we've never heard of or things we can try. And I think a good example that comes to mind is whether you're negotiating a salary or a house sale, something that involves money. Often people will say, oh, I'm terrible at negotiating. I, I don't know what to do or what to say. And so something that I've found quite helpful is to kind of start Start, for example, higher than where you what you want, so that you can show to the other person that you're willing to move. You're will you're reasonable. You're flexible. So, for example, I don't know. You you ask for a salary 10k higher than what you want, because then if they say, oh, actually, you know, we need to move, then you can move to 10k less and actually end up with the the fee that you wanted in the first place. So, Zoe, over to you. I'd love to hear your insights around negotiation and whether you think that yeah, that's an effective tool. Sure. We can, again, we could talk for forever about negotiating. In the book, for anyone listening, I have two chapters specifically on negotiating. And one of those is um, particularly relevant for women. Actually, it's relevant for all of us, but it's about gender in negotiating. Hmm. What you were talking about, about asking for more than, you said more than you want, but I think what you meant is more than you would be higher than your bottom line, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't understand that if you don't do that, people can perceive you as stingy and greedy, which is so it's kind of surprising that we think like, oh, if I ask for more, they'll think that I'm greedy. Right. And I don't I don't want to do that. And also, I just want to be simple and straightforward and reasonable. So I'm just going to give my bottom line. Right. That's the most generous thing that I could do. But just like you were saying, Adrian, if there's nowhere to move, if there's no wiggle room, then in fact, not only is it less likely for the deal to go through in many cases, but it 
has it creates a bad vibe on yeah. the other side instead of uh having the other party feel that we're more reasonable because we've been willing to go down and also though it's important that they feel like a better negotiator they're proud of themselves <laughs> if yeah. they can get you to go down and if they can't it's not just they think that you're stingy and maybe greedy but they're frustrated with themselves for being a bad negotiator almost all of us feel that we don't have much negotiation experience even though actually in the in reality we're negotiating every single day we just don't call it negotiating typically unless it has to do with money and often has to do with strangers or business so but we're negotiating work projects and who does what or all kinds of home stuff with roommates or family who's going to take care of what when and how do we collaborate every time you're figuring out a collaboration this is always a negotiation right but so so first of all you're already good at negotiating all of us we're already good at negotiating we just some of us and this is the majority of both women and men but even more women than men really don't like negotiating and so we don't want to do it and we think we're bad at it when we're calling it negotiating about asking for more than you expect to get clearly this isn't something that you would do again and again and again with the same person right you're mm -hmm. not going to do this again and again and again with your employee or your boss or your partner however in a transaction like you were talking about like you're negotiating a job offer or you're negotiating a real estate purchase or sale yes absolutely almost always you'd want to leave yourself some wiggle room in what you're asking or what you're what you're offering and i find when i challenge students to do what is called a door in the face challenge or rejection challenge door in the faces you just ask for a lot more than you expect to get but by the way anyone doing this make sure that you want the thing that you ask for so <laughs> yeah. not just money but like um i've had students for example ask a famous person if they will come and speak at Yale. And the idea is that you're expecting them to say no, and then you ask for something smaller. That's a door in the face mm. strategy. So you ask for something big, they say no, and then you ask for something smaller. They see you as reasonable because you've made a concession and then they're more likely to say yes. But about a third of the time, they say yes to that initial <laughs> big thing that you thought that they were going to say no to. So if you didn't want it, then you're in trouble. <laughs> and so, you know, in that situation of famous person says yes to come in, tell me to the end the student is like oh my god i don't like i don't have a budget i don't know how to <laughs> like get a room or promote it like what should i do i'm like i don't know you got to figure it out <laughs> yes, you so, got it. yes yeah um so so just very very simply the idea of asking for more um when you ask for a lot of course, it's helpful to have some kind of benchmark if you can. And you can also, if you feel like the other person might think that you are um, miscalibrated or uh, greedy, crazy, something like that, if you feel like it's extreme, you can give them a signal that you know it's a lot, right? Like, mm. um, I don't know if they're, if this is within the realm of possibility, but what I'm really hoping for is X. So you're giving a high anchor, but you're indicating this willingness to negotiate. Um, another thing that 
comes up a lot in negotiations is gender dynamics and gender differences. And that's why I wrote a whole chapter about it in the book. Mm. One of the biggest gender differences that's the most important is that women are far less likely to realize that they can negotiate. So mm. they're less likely to even try or to ask for anything different than what's on the table. And uh, it's been shown in many, many different situations, but a concrete one was a study by um, one of my soon-to-be colleagues named Deb Small. And she ran this study where you do a task and you, if you're a participant, you have already been told you're going to be paid between 3 and $10. And you're finding words in a boggle game. <laughs> so you find as many words as you can. And then the experimenter says, here's $3. Is $3 okay? So you knew that you might get 3 you might get 10 you might get something in between. And there were 27% of men who got $3 asked for more than that, but only 3% of women who got $3 asked for more. Wow. And this is, it's just a concrete, easy to remember study, but in many real world, meaningful, important situations, similar kind of thing has happened. And another of my colleagues, Barbara Biasi, has found in a study where uh, this is Wisconsin teachers in the United States. Their contracts shifted from union pay scale, where everyone was paid the same, to non-union, where people could negotiate, but it wasn't stated explicitly. And men started negotiating at much higher rates than women did. And every year after that, the gender gap in pay got bigger and bigger, where men and women had been paid the same before. Mm. Well, I mean, this is something actually that I, I think I've started to do more, but it's interesting. I learned this from my male partner, but now I've started to encourage my female friends. You know, they'll say to me, oh, you know, I'm doing this or that, but oh, the pay's not great, but I'm going to do it for this reason. Or they'll say, you know, it's to, for example, it's five weeks. I can't really commit that much time, but you know, I'm going to make it work. And I've, I've now become this champion of, well, have you tried negotiating or have you gone back to them with another offer? Or have you kind of asked, have you actually asked? the question can we can I do less or can I, and they're like oh I hadn't actually thought of that they just kind of took yeah. the offer as, as being concrete and that's something that I've yeah started to champion and, and try and encourage my friends to do I think an outlier though when you were uh, first talking about the door in the face and the outrageous asks and kind of and and naming it and knowing that it's outrageous I was actually thinking another personal story here about this Christmas that just went my sister was going to my sister was going traveling to Sri Lanka for three weeks with her husband and she asked me and the first question essentially was could I look after her dog who is about a year old so kind of a puppy for three weeks while she's in Sri Lanka and that's over the Christmas time so obviously my initial response I'm thinking no way like obviously I have my son and I have other commitments and it's Christmas and it's three weeks that's like no way can I look after your dog for three weeks no but my sister I think is just an incredible negotiator who essentially because she set the bar so high then then it's like oh okay well could you maybe just have him for two weeks and then I'll get a friend or could you have him for one week and you know that would really help me out and then on this anyway you can see where this goes I then end up having the dog <laughs> having the dog for I think maybe five or six days around the Christmas time 
And I remember, I think it was maybe Boxing Day, and I hope my sister's not going <laughs> to listen to this, but, you know, it was pouring rain and I had a house full, you know, I had kids here and relatives staying and, you know, the ha- and, and I remember thinking, oh, I've got to take the dog out for a walk and I'm out walking this dog in the rain and my sister sends a WhatsApp picture of her and her husband on the beach and she's like, you know, <laughs> having the best time in Sri Lanka. And I had this moment where I thought, how have I ended up here? Like, how am I walking the dog in the rain? I'm pretty tired and obviously puppies wake up early so you're like out there at like five in the morning and you're sending me a bit a picture from the beach with a coconut and I just felt like I said no to this but here I am in the rain with your dog so yes a lesson there I think the lesson from my part is as a recovering people pleaser it when you say no you have to mean it but the lesson for my sister is actually yes start with a huge ask like can you have my dog for three weeks and then when you when you scale it back to just five days suddenly it seems super reasonable and they just can't say no i love that example and also anyone listening can imagine the reason one of the reasons to practice these kinds of door in the face asks and anchoring is because actually we don't know what is a big request and what is a small request because size is relative. Mm-hmm. So what your sister could have done instead was ask you for something even bigger than the three weeks first. So she could have said, would you mind, say, um, taking care of our house and our dog and you live there and you bring in the mail and you take care of the plants and oh yeah also i have this other thing right and you're saying no i can't i i'm sorry i can't i can't move to your house and take care of your whole life for three weeks and then she could just say okay i totally understand then what about is it possible that just you could take the dog to come and stay with you and you don't need to come and stay here and you would have been more likely to say yes i'm not saying you would have but you would have been more inclined to say yes to that dog request had she asked for something even bigger first Yes, you see, honestly, I feel like it was a master. She's like a master manipulator, but she's not a Jedi. Any. She is. <laughs> and she, and this is the thing. My sister actually is incredibly charismatic and likable, and I, yeah, I do find it hard to say no to her. So, a lesson there from Aisha. Thank you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Oh, Zoe, I've loved this conversation so much. I don't want it to end, but I do need to ask you about the Power Hour as this is the Power Hour podcast. And I love to ask each of my guests about, specifically for me, it's, you know, the first hour of the day. For others, it's a different time of the day. But I would love to know, Zoe, if you have a a Power Hour, a morning routine, what motivates you first thing in the morning when you get out of bed, what do you include in your first hour of each day? Adrian, I've been dreading this question since I found out about it because I've completely fallen off the wagon. At various times in my life, I do have morning practices and like right now it's a disaster. This book published at the beginning of February and I have been working harder and traveling more than I have 
any other time in my life. So I'm not exercising. I'm not meditating. I'm not eating right. I'm not sleeping well, like none of that. But what I thought I could share that would be helpful with listeners is that I do have this practice before I write mm -hmm. that I find to be for me as helpful as when I do have good morning practices that serve all of the purposes that you say. I completely agree with you. When I'm writing, I need to have a clear mind and that's the problem, right? But I can do this one specific exercise that no matter what led up to me sitting in the chair ready to write, no matter where my brain is, I can clear my brain in five to 10 minutes. And I call it my Nietzsche journal because Nietzsche, the philosopher, had the fundamental belief that what it means to be human is to be on the path of becoming someone who does not deny. And I have done some research on self-deception and I find it really interesting. What I would do when I write in my Nietzsche journal is I just write one or two pages where every line begins, I do not deny. And I just do stream of consciousness. I do not deny. I do not deny. And then I finish whatever pops into my head at that moment. And maybe it's stressful things. Maybe it's rumination things. Maybe it's excitement. Maybe it's um, planning things that are on my mind. Whatever it is that's in my brain, lots of stuff gets unearthed and comes out when I write. I do not deny. And there are things that get brought out this way more than doing morning pages where you just write stream of consciousness, anything, because there are things that I don't want to see about myself mm. or my state of mind that are even more distracting than the things that are easily on my mind. So that's what I can offer to anyone who's thinking about experimenting with other sorts of power hour morning practices. Wow. So do you, I have a question. So do you write the words, I do not deny, and then yeah. you carry on writing? You don't just think yeah. that in your mind, you write it down. Okay. Right. I do not deny and then finish the sentence. I'm going to give this a try. I really like this as someone who I you know, have a lot of friends who do different mindful practices, different um, coaches and leaders. And one of them always says to me, she says, Adrian, you're your personality dictates that you love to be in a position of control. And when you don't feel like you're in control, that's when, you know, it's not natural for you. So she actually has a similar, I think it sounds quite similar, but she uses the words, I surrender. And then whatever follows, she'll say, you know, surrendering to if it's something that's scary or fear, or if you're surrendering to the unknown, or maybe just surrendering to the feeling of excitement. And it kind of reminds me of that same thing of not denying or, or suppressing or ignoring, and actually just saying, whatever it is, just surrender. I do not deny. I like, I really like this. I'm going to give it a try myself. Well, thank you. If it's helpful, let me know. <laughs> I will. And also, I'd also like to say, you know, when you kind of caveat it all, oh, I've been busy and I'm not working out and I'm not doing these things. And, you know, we have seasons in our lives and, you know, you're incredibly uh, successful and busy and you've just published this book. As you said, this season right now is the season of, you know, this is the focus. But my hope for you, Zoe, is that when the next season, whenever that starts, you will be able to, I suppose, have a power hour, yeah, reclaim some time again to focus on those things if you want to. If those are things that are important to you, then I hope you'll you'll take that time back and say, okay, this is really important. Now that season is over, let me focus more on these things again. Thank you so much. And I do have a personal coach who helps me with exactly this in 
forget about anything else that's going on in my life. She'll help me with that too. But the first thing is how can she get Zoe back on track with whatever practices I need to be doing to be healthy, energized, clear-headed. And because of this conversation this morning with you, I'm going to reach out to Mandy right now, who I haven't talked to in a few months. I'm going to reach out to Mandy and schedule a session. So thank you. Great, great. That's fantastic to hear. And thank you so much. I've loved this conversation. I know that the listeners are going to enjoy it too. So please just tell us where we can get the book. Influence is your superpower. You can get the book pretty much anywhere that books are sold. And you can also find it and lots of other stuff on my website, which is zoechance.com. I have a free newsletter called Influence Insights Infrequently because I don't send it very often, but it's very concrete kinds of strategies, science-based, like the stuff that we've been talking about today. And that's how you could find out about the free course that's coming out later this year if you feel like it. I'm also on Twitter. Feel free to follow me and on LinkedIn, you can connect with me there. Great. Thank you so much. I'm going to share that in the show notes. I myself today will be signing up to that newsletter and I also would love to hear more about this program. So thank you so much, Zoe. Nothing else to say uh, to the listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in every week. I really appreciate your time. And if you've enjoyed the episode, then please, of course, let us know. You can rate and review. You can share it with others. Sometimes I say this at the end of episodes or podcasts that I listen to, the show host will say, you know, rate, review, and you kind of think, oh yeah, whatever but you don't actually do it but I would so appreciate if you do have two or three minutes and you enjoy listening to this podcast every week if it adds value to your life then please do take a few minutes to rate and review the show it really does help to reach more people and to book more amazing guests like Zoe have an awesome week stay safe see you Adrian thank you so much Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.